<laughs> and Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan appearing together. Of course, one film in which they did appear together, uh, although briefly, in Spike's case, is The Magic Christian. Um, Spike Milligan, how did you come to take on that part of the traffic warden? I wrote for the job. <laughs> <laughs> and? Well, I got it via Fincy Labour Exchange, if you must know. I said, what's going on today? So we just have a traffic warden for Peter Sillis today. <laughs> no, I wrote to Peter, you know. I said, look, I'd like to get into films. You know, everybody says, I must have leprosy or hi halitosis. Or both, or all three, which is one more letter. <laughs> and uh, I wrote, so can I do this job? And I did it, you know. I never, I can't bear to, I went and did it, that's all. I got, that's how I did the job, that's all. <laughs> joined this week by Jem Roberts, whose latest book, Fab Fools, takes a unique look at the Beatles and their impact, uh, influences and involvement with comedy. Hello, Jem. Goodly day load to you, Tyler. Oh, a little unwinnism there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't planned, but it came out that way. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. And um, oh, thank you. for people who, are, who don't know you, you're a very prolific writer. Uh, almost exclusively, you've written books about British comedy. Uh, yeah. Although, although you did write one of your recent uh, books was was Tales of Britain, wasn't it? Big departure that one. Yeah, that's, mm. that's, that's on a little side uh, alley of its own. That one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I travel the country telling stories as Brother Bernard, and uh, you know, if anyone loves British folklore, it's your only option. There's nothing <laughs> else out there. That's the only the reason I wrote it. It didn't exist. I, I won't take up any more of your time with it. But if you love British folklore, Tales of Britain, look it up. There we go. Uh, but you've also written two books in particular, very close to my heart that I've read Ooh. a couple of times. One being, is it the true history of Blackadder? It is indeed. The true history of the Blackadder. Of the Blackadder. And also the, the other book, which I, I remember getting it on, how long has it been out now? Seven, eight years ago, Clue Bible, I'm talking about. Uh, that was my very first book. So that's going back 14 years, actually. Oh, wow. So, well, four, 14 years since I embarked on the journey. And I think it was out. Uh, late 2008 or was it 2009? I don't know. It's too long ago to remember, but it's 12 or 13 years ago it came out. Right. In fact, it's, it's strange at the moment, actually, because um, one thing that I busy myself with in these sort of post-COVID times is turning all my books into Audible. Um, there's a fantastic producer, Racket Productions, uh, Chris Dyer, who read my official Douglas Adams biography, The Fruit, for The Blind. Mm -hmm. And that's been available on Audible for a while. And it's weird to have somebody else read your book, but he did it for the blind. And he reached out to me because there's all my other books and the publishers just don't give you a chance to turn these things into audio books. So now, apart from Tales of Britain, which is coming out in installments, um, I've just finished recording uh, Fab Fools. And right now, I'm actually doing the audio book for the Clue Bible after 13 or 14 <gasps> years. Excellent. So it, it's it's a very strange experience to sort of go back to your very first book and uh, 
make it alive. And in fact, for any fans of that book, I should say, because it's now 12, 13 years since it came out, I mean, it was, it all happened during the tragedy of losing Humph. Mm. Uh, death mm. be, being a terrible key theme in my ongoing career. <laughs> because this is why we do it, because people keep dying and you've got to preserve their memories and, you know, all the great stories of making people laugh, which is really what I am motivated by, certainly not money. Mm. Um, and mm. so that's a perfect example. In the making of that book we lost uh, David Hatch and Jeffrey Perkins and Humph oh yeah was, um but the what I was going to say was sorry uh because it's so long now uh, there's been 20 series or something since then and obviously we've also lost Jeremy and Tim so I'm basically going to write a whole new section Great. for audio so it's going to be a totally updated it's the 50th anniversary as you know probably next yeah, yeah. Uh, February yes mm. so it's going to be the clue bible plus you know, with a whole new update on the back end uh, in audio form. I'd, I'd love to have done it as a book, but uh, uh, let's not get onto the subject of publishing. Okay. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's, that is fantastic. I absolutely love, I'm sorry, having a clue. Although I must admit, I don't know. I mean, I'll hold my hand up and say I've not been as assiduous a listener in recent years as I used to mm. be. And I, I gather sort of Barry's more or less retired, is he? Or does he oh, God, no. Barry will never retire, and nor will Graham. But they now have the option of stepping in and stepping out when they wish to. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I think it's pretty evident that Tim was a huge kind of motivator and really sort of a linchpin of everything. That's not a reason, you know, uh, to lose the show, but just in terms of the gang that we knew Tim was the the anchor man for it mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. So I think now it's just there's it's funny actually Barry and Graham won the whole ongoing contest against Tim and Willie going way back. Barry and Graham, it's the their team has won. I'm sorry I haven't a clue. <laughs> so I think they they will be back in you know when they want to but the default now I think we have to accept is young up and coming ones and maybe occasionally the odd Andy Hamilton if you want a bit of veteran action going on. Yes. So that's great news. And and Fab Falls, did you did you kind of have like a, a eureka moment when you sort of discovered this gap in the Beatles book market? I did, actually. It's quite early on. This this book is the longest gestation of any of them, which is partly why I'm sort of in this kind of audio world now of sort of readapting my old books, because it's just this was such a mountain to climb. Unbelievably, because it is such a huge open goal. And that's mm. what I hate as an author. It's just like, this is ridiculous. This has never been done. And I can tell you exactly how it came about because uh, I've always worked in magazines. Uh, I was trying to write for children. And also I've been performing comedy since the turn of the millennium. And uh -huh. that was my life. And a, a huge, huge comedy geek and buying a lot of books on comedy. And the only reason I got into this and wrote the book about Clue is because I could imagine the kind of book that somebody else would write about Clue. And I could imagine how it would give me a heart attack and I would die <laughs> because Clue was so precious and so intricate. And so it really was just a case of do it yourself. Yeah. So that's why it started. Blackadder was and is literally the single greatest passion in my life in, in comedy. It's what gave me my love of comedy, watching Blackadder as a mm. kid blew mm. my mind. So it was the same kind of thing again. It was thinking, I know I can do a proper job with this. But the point is, once I'd got that far, Tyler, 
and I'd done, I thought, these are bloody big subjects. You know, this isn't just, you know, the, the guide to an unofficial guide to Simpsons references or something like that. These are huge cornerstones of British culture. Oh, yeah. And I've been allowed, because Blackadder, we had Rowan Atkinson, Ben Elton, Richard Curtis, John Lloyd, especially. It was official, basically. These are official books about huge cornerstones of British culture. And I thought, geez, I'm really at the top of the table here in terms of my subject matter. Yeah. Um, and then the next thing I, you know, the family invited me to be to write the official Douglas Adams biography. And uh, we haven't mentioned my official Fry and Laurie book. No, the one that came next. Soupy Twist. Soupy Twist. Thank you. Mm. I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not trying to shill, but I'm just trying to make the point that, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not worth doing if it's unofficial, in my opinion. You know, you're trying to you scrabble around and, and get quotes from people behind people's other people's. Yes. Yeah. So it was always just about making it the official thing. But I just thought, well, these are huge cornerstones of British culture. So here's a cornerstone of British culture, the Beatles, which has, they have always been the closest I have to a religion. It just kind of occurred to me, I'm a comedy historian. The Beatles are comedy and nobody has ever done that. And I just thought I've got shelves and shelves and shelves of Beatles books and I'm not bloody buying anymore because it's all been said. <laughs> But hang on, there's a whole angle that nobody's looked at. It's like Nelson's column or something, and literally nobody's looked at it from a certain street, and he's blowing a raspberry or something, you know? <laughs> and it's just like, why has nobody done this? And I went from publisher to publisher trying to point out what a huge part of the Beatles things were. I mean, it's all-encompassing. I mean, the argument that I make is that it really was the X factor that took them from being, you know, beyond the shadows or Jerry and the pacemakers. It was kind of the defining USP that made the Beatles the Beatles. And then you've just got such a great story, which obviously incorporates everything from the goons and before to, you know, Peter Serafinowicz or, uh, you know, yesterday, the Richard Curtis film. It's just the richest thing there ever oh, was. I was just say, have you heard Peter's um, version of A Day in the Life? Where he does... Um... Oh, oh, yes, yes. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. On my way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, I noticed I was late. Found my coat and grabbed my hat. Made the bus in seconds flat. Found my way upstairs and had a smoke. Somebody spoke and I went into a dream. Missed my stop, ran downstairs, but forgot to pay the fare. The conductor chased me down the street Boy! With blistered feet, I staggered into work Morning boss, sorry I'm late Never seen him so irate If it happens again, you're on your way Now I want those accounts by the end of the day he should release a whole album of all those things but uh yeah so it was a long long journey unbelievably um i think it's because music in prince didn't kind of get it and there's no such thing as comedy in prince because comedy non-fiction is not uh the seller that it used to be mm. um so in the end uh we got it out with uh, a lovely company called candy jar so it now exists and it'll soon be available in audio as well. And it just, as I say, it takes in everything, which is how I beautifully come to be speaking to you, Tyler, because obviously Absolutely. the goons are, you know, 
they they and Monty Python are the two biggest sort of uh, comparisons to make with the Beatles, really, and the the closest ties that they had to uh, comedians. Obviously, they were obsessed by them. Yeah, well, I, I've been doing well. This is now I'm into sort of the 30s in terms of this podcast, and oh, I'm yeah. I'm struggling to think. I mean, there may be one or two episodes where the Beatles didn't get mentioned at least once somewhere <laughs> along the line. And <clears throat> when you and I discussed, you know, you you coming on the show. You did mention that you're not particularly a fan of the Goon Show. I was wondering whether we were going to get into this kind of area <laughs> because suddenly all your listeners despise me. Because, <laughs> no, I venerate, I venerate the Goon Show, and there's lots of lovely stuff in there. And this is the thing. This is what I say in Fab Fools about the Goons. Ultimately, Tyler is the the uh, influence they've had is beyond measure beyond any other comedy thing you can ever mention and if you love comedy you have to love the goons on that score even if the show itself doesn't do it for you or you know uh, an old you know copy of son of fred on youtube or something leaves you bemused you'd have no python you'd have no beyond the fringe or peter cook You'd have no no goodies, no, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, or Clue, or anything, not 9 o'clock news. The whole story, it comes from there, you know, and you have to, and it is such a great story, and they are all such great characters. So there's, so, you know, all this stuff I love about the goons. I'm, I'm fascinated by the goons. And this is the thing, but by the time I st started listening to the goon show, I was obsessed with, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, which was, to me, so raucous and... And it had that kind of Clesian logic holding so much of it together and everything. And to me, that was like the Beatles. And then suddenly I had all this Goon Show stuff. And it should have been like Elvis or Sun Records or, or Johnny Cash or something. But the Goons felt more like a kind of a bebop jazz outfit yeah. record, recorded somewhere in a London cellar in 1948. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's sad that some things uh, travel for people and some things don't. I, I think that I call them a, a Rosetta Stone of comedy. They are yeah. essential to every comedy story that you want to tell in Britain, certainly. In fact, you know, and in America, if you know your stuff. They influenced the uh, outfits like Firesign Theatre. Mm, yeah. Um, well, if you know your stuff, then, mm. the, you know, in the world comedy, you know, some comedian in Sri Lanka on doing stand up, if, if they really know their craft, they should know, you know, Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan and, uh, you know, things like that. Mm. So we're going to talk about a particular particular film, which mm -hmm. is, I hate to use the word, it's got a sort of a cult following, because that you generally means it's not very good. Um, ah. And I actually think it's a very good film. But, uh, it, but maybe it, you're part of the cult. So. Well, do you, do, you remember, do, you, do you remember Kenneth Williams on Just a Minute? He always used to, oh. say, always used to say that, didn't he? He's I've one of the biggest cults around here, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, but it, it's it's a film which brings in um, the, the the Beatles, the Goons, and Python. It's the Magic Christian from 1969, and it's Whoa. it's it's obviously it's Sellers, it's Ringo, it's got uh, Milligan, it's got Cleese, it's got Chapman, it's got a song by Macca, it's got a lookalike Lennon and Yoko. It's got, it's just everything. <laughs> and Kathy it's, Jakes and John Limmer's Urie. Yeah, so many faces in this film, yeah. and um, in Fab Falls, I jotted this down earlier you, you described the film if you, I, hope you don't, I hope you don't mind me quoting you please but, do but um but you described it as a, as a film which became the jewel within the mini genre of ludicrously trippy british comedies with embarrassingly starry casts which make you wonder how they ever got made 
I'm, yeah. I'm pleased. I'm pleased you you chose that quote. I was hoping that was coming up. <laughs> so yeah, so Magic Christian. So how many times have you seen this, Jim? Oh well, I, in all honesty, probably eight or nine times, I'd mm-hmm. say. And, and given the fact that when I first saw it, I had to send off for the NTSC VHS from America, <laughs> that's you know that shows commitment. So I probably got that around about two thousand or something. I think probably only recently put it out in the trash. Uh, now it's available on DVD at least. So it's the first time I've watched it on DVD when I watched it a couple of nights ago with my lovely wife. Um, and it was the first time, well, actually, no, I watched it in writing Fab Fools, obviously, I had to remind myself. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, th- see, the thing is, I am a fan of those kind of films. I should have come up with an acronym uh, from the quote that you just read out. Yes. Um, but th- there are a lot of those kind of films. And, and you know, and I mean, Joe McGrath wrote, uh, directed at least two or three, I mm, think. Yeah. Um, so just these forgotten sixes films, and, and it's just everyone's earning their, you know, 10 guineas turning up on screen for five <laughs> minutes. And, and, you know, Michael Rimmer, there's another one. There's so many of these films. I mean, I think one of my very, very favourite films is Bedazzled. And that's one of oh, those yeah. that, that's, mm. that, that is a genuinely brilliant piece of cinema. That, is. that is not yeah. one of these films. That, that goes beyond it. But it could have so, it could have been part of this genre. And I think the lack of success is inherently uh, one of the defining things of this genre, of which the Magic Christian is is just the greatest example. I would say the Magic Christian is the most out there, uh, balls a nonsensical, annoying. I mean, this is the thing. I, look, you can't say anything against the Magic Christian because what it does to people is exactly what it's all about and what the protagonist is doing to people in it. It is in itself, it's like the most holistically annoying thing that ever existed, the Magic Christian, because it exists to annoy and it's all about annoying. I mean, it's doing it for greed. There is a particular reason for it, but everything about the film is it's, is like going on the Magic Christian trip. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, it throws things in your face. It's, a, it's almost an abusive piece of entertainment. Mm. And, you know, you've paid money to see it. So who's the schmuck? And that's exactly what Guy Grand is doing scene by scene in the film. So that in itself kind of makes it a work of genius, you could argue. Yeah, well, you talk about it annoying people. Mm. Uh, I don't want to race to the end already, but Irene Handel, who was a good friend of Peter Sellers, the Mm. lovely, sainted Irene Handel, yeah. Um, who wasn't, it wasn't, you know, wasn't averse to the odd uh, four letter outburst herself, <laughs> but she, um, she saw the film and she rang up Peter Sellers and she, and she told him that, you know, she was disgusted, you know, with the, um, the scene at the end with the big vat of yeah. urine and blood and, and uh, animal manure. Um, but it's, yeah, you're absolutely And it would take right. an Irene handle to tell Peter Sellers that, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, because I think he kind of respected her. <laughs> no, um, exactly. Uh, had you read the novel? Uh, I, I, well, not before. I mean, that would have been very strange because, uh, but I, I think it is one of those films that will send you looking for source material and looking for a little bit more information and backup stuff. So yeah, I read the novel many years ago. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. I've got it out specially. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it is a very different thing, uh, to yes. the film. Yeah. I, was that, uh, goes... I read it when I was 20, I was living in Bangor, North Wales. Okay. And I was living in a, in a student house and, they all went home at Christmas and I was stuck there on my Todd because I had no family to go to. So, and there was no central, the heating wasn't working. So it's freezing. And I was just, I was just like walking around in a, you know, with a blanket around me, like some character from Dickens, 
And I looked under the stairs and there was a load of old books in there. And it was like, mostly like, you know, the usual sort of Dick Francis, Hammond, Innes, and um, books like that. But there was a mm. copy of The Magic Christian. Mm. And because I, you know, I'd loved, I'd, I'd seen the film a couple of times by that point. So I thought I'll read this, and I read it, and I didn't. I don't, I don't even think I finished it. Actually, I didn't. I didn't. I really didn't get on with it. But a couple of quite sort of stark differences from the film. It's obviously set in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not got a young man grand in it, mm-hmm. and and the and I, I remember that the vat scene, the vat of urine, was was right at the beginning of the book. Yeah, they uh, it, and the. Um... The bit where he sets up a shop and basically gives everything away for free is the very end of the book. And that's sort of oh, chucked in early on in the... Uh, right. It's a difficult book to finish because it is episodic. It's not. It's a very, very short book, but it's it's totally episodic. It doesn't go anywhere. It, uh, and it just kind of ultimately just ends like they'd run out of paper. Just yeah. And in exactly the same way, the film always feels like it just kind of ends when they've run out of film. They just like, <laughs> everything's going off a bit. Uh, well... I still think anyone who's ever seen that film, it gets to the end, it's just like they're looking over their shoulder, like John Cleese or something. What? What was? Well, that what? What happened? What? What was the point of of all this? And they just go and get in their sleeping bags and go and sleep in the park. And the verger from Dad's Army comes up and uh, accepts a bun. That's who it is. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah, no, constantly. It's always <laughs> bloody Richard Attenborough turns up and has no character. He's well, just sort of. Yeah. The, the the racer the 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 Oxford boat race guy and everything, but it's just no need for him to be there at all. Well, Roman Polanski gets a credit. <laughs> well, that's and even more so. Yeah, and he's in it for thirty seconds on screen with no lines, as far as I can tell. Yeah, um, with uh, well, that, that's what if, if anyone hasn't actually seen the film yet, probably wouldn't say any more about that scene because no. that is one that was one scene that it is too easy to spoil. And when I was watching it with my my wife, and and I always thought it'd be interesting to watch it with somebody who's sort of a complete blank canvas as far as the magic Christian goes, a little sort of testing uh, bed for what the hell was going on on screen. That was one scene I did make sure that she was uh, not looking at her phone. <laughs> what do you think is happening here? And what do you what connection do you think it's it has to anything else that we've watched and, and that is going on? Um, it's it's like a comic relief evening sometimes. It is. That's a great yeah, way of putting it. Yeah. I, no, I tell you, I've got, I, I have an even better analogy, Tyler. Go I'll on tell then. You, I will tell you what it really struck me watching it again. Mm. What what the magic Christian feels like 90 to 90 minutes to two hours of, of entertainment on screen. It felt like a 1969 attempt to make brass eye a Chris Morris thing. Imagine yeah. a br- imagine a brass eye <laughs> solely on the subject of greed and money, right? Yes. And it's everything about it. The the way that Guy Grand is going around sort of pranking people and putting them in situations where, and to see how they react. That is totally what Chris Morris did. Yes. And the way that he would take a theme, a satirical theme, and get the most outlandish, ridiculous way of kind of presenting it. And I suddenly thought, the Magic Christian is the template for Brass Eye 30 years early. Absolutely. It's, it's really odd. But once I saw it that way, I, I actually, it made me like the film a lot more. Well, I, kind of, look, I thought rather than being this sort of flopping crazy whacked out you know everyone's stoned film it suddenly became a kind of a more pointed satire when i saw it that way and it, it kind of it, it it kind of works within you know it's such a strange subject i think it's such a 1959 subject when the book was written 
yes. if you're in America and suddenly yeah. everyone's got a car and a nice big fridge in the kitchen and everyone's doing well and they're getting their money and suddenly you think, oh, what will you do for money? You know, how, what does money mean to you? And that's what made uh, Terry Southern write it. And that's also been a very difficult sell for a lot of subsequent generations watching it because it's interesting now, obviously rich and poor is the greatest subject in our society. Like it's never been in, in a very, very long time. Mm. But at the same time, um, only the rich have money <laughs> these days, it seems. And so the idea of questioning yourself and, and what you, you would do for money doesn't seem to have quite the same, uh, you know, attraction that it did in 1959 America. But um, at the same time, as an attack on rich bastards, uh, there's certainly some entertainment still to be had out of it in 2021 on that score. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it tends to be it tends to be going after after people who are comfortably well off. Let's mm, say, yeah. but there are the, the the hot dog vendor played by Victor Madden. Yeah. for example he's the only one he's the only character who's offered money who actually rejects it isn't he it's true that's true and, and that is also uh, at the very start of the book as well so that's obviously a, that yeah. must be a key part of it ah do you know what i hadn't thought of that that's a very good point mm. i mean it is you know i think there are a lot of americans who probably consider the book and the film, you know, a communist manifesto of some kind. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think Peter Sellers would be interested in making a communist manifesto. No. So, uh, oh, no, no, no. It, that doesn't really work. Well, it's, it's one of these where it was one of these projects, as, as with being there, Sellers had sort of hawked the, the book of being there around for years, wanting to get mm. the film made or get a film made of it. And, and it's the same with The Magic Christian. He'd loved the book. I guess he must have read it in the early 60s. He'd given it to Kubrick on... Uh, strange exactly. love that, that's what i was going to say actually that's another thing if anyone you know thinks magic christian is a load of crap uh you know and thinks that it's it's got no value to it you'd have to remind them that if it wasn't for the magic christian there would be no dr strange right. yeah mm -hmm. it was going to be a straight drama and if terry southern hadn't written this bizarre book and kubrick hadn't hadn't read it then there'd be no Doctor Strange at all, and obviously he came and worked on it. So, uh, yeah. So it's it's certainly responsible for one stone cold, inarguable comedy classic, whether you like it or not. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and the part the part in the film of Youngman Grand, who's 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 the adopted son of of Peter Sellers' character Guy Grand. It was originally yeah. written for Lennon, wasn't it? Well, yeah, post sort of uh, how I won the war, but um, how I won the war turned out to definitely be. Mm. The last ever bit of character acting from from John, who obviously, you know, spent his entire life being as much of himself as he possibly could be. So you couldn't have found a worse person to, <laughs> yeah. to be a, a, a character actor, even though the character by its very nature is just a sponge, you know, and is just not there. For, and, and, you know, Ringo does a great job. There's so much. There's still a lot of mystery surrounding this. And I should say in writing Fab Fools, um, I spent uh, a whole evening in the pub with Joe McGrath. Oh, wow. Uh, right. A long time ago. It must be about 2012. As I say, this book was very long in the gestation. And I sat in the pub with him and his, his wife, Petter Button, who was uh, in charge of all the costume and everything for the Ruttles. Right. So that was a fascinating evening. Yeah. Um, but I, I've got a sort of huge audio file of, of like two hours worth of, of talking to Joe in the pub with pub noises and everything. <laughs> And it's 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 with Joe, you know, having had a few and just ah, 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 <laughs> and, and just sort of trying to I'd love to have been able to 
to actually get sit somewhere quieter and more sober with Joe maybe 20 years ago actually and get more sense out of him about what really happened of course the other problem is Joe McGrath bless him I think has a lot of internal uh narratives of the way things went uh and he's not alone this is most people that you interview mm. when you write these kind of books mm. but but sometimes they'll say something and you go right well I know that's not true I don't think you're lying to me or you're you know bragging or anything but that's how it's turned out in your head and I know that you are wrong but let's just move on but you could probably write a whole you know bizarre narrative book on the creation of the magic Christian film except the problem is that nearly everyone's dead now so you know Joe's in his 90s John Cleese what would he remember he'd only have a little angle so he, that story's gone now this is the, mm. you know, this is what breaks my heart but I'm sure we don't know three quarters of what went down in making this film I mean first you've got the book which is very different. Um, and then you've got uh, Peter Sellers hiring Cleese and Chapman to do a complete draft of a screenplay. And nobody's ever seen that. I don't know if John's got it hidden away somewhere or I don't think it's in the Graham Chapman archives or it probably oh, have been released. By I now. wanted to ask you about that because there was a, um, a prototype of the Python sketch, The Mouse Problem from series yeah. one that was written and vetoed by Sellers for, the, for inclusion yeah. in the film. I've, which I've heard that. Um, which which immediately made, made me think of um, the film Rent a Dick, because oh God. because oh God. <laughs> which I've covered That's on this. If anyone thinks Magic Christian is bad, watch Rent a Dick. Well, because the mouse problem is basically grown men dressing up as mice. Yeah. And then in Rent a Dick, there's a sustained scene with with Kenneth Cope dressed up as a large mouse. Uh, <laughs> but I was just wondering how that would have fitted, how the the mouse problem or a version of it would have fitted into the. The Magic Christian. Well, it, it's a sketch show. You know, it, it is a sketch show. It's not that long a distance. Well, in fact, it's almost, you know, it's not that long a distance from Magic Christian to, and now for something completely different, really, except that there is one protagonist going through it all, you know. I was just thinking, actually, it's just occurred to me now, because there's that Simpsons episode. Is it Homer versus Dignity? Yes, I've, I've heard that's based on it, yeah. Now, that, yeah, that's supposed to be loosely based on the Magic Christian where he gets, mm. uh, Burns pays Homer money to humiliate himself, basically, in yes, public. Yes, and, yes, And there's there's an infamous scene, which was kind of, a lot of fans point to as being the, the shark jumping moment of The Simpsons, which was Homer dressing up as a panda and basically yeah. getting violated by a real panda. Um, and I'm just, yeah. I'm just wondering whether the mouse problem may have been along those lines. I, 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 I don't know how. I can't see a mouse, a real mouse, violating a man dressed as a mouse. <laughs> well, but I suppose if your argument is, uh, what will you do for money? That kind of allows you to present literally any sketch ever, and then say, oh, that person's been offered money. You know, so mm. the, that was probably what they were trying to do. But n nobody's ever seen. I'd love to see that screenplay and see what they mm. came up with and, and how they changed it around. <laughs> and then the credit ultimately goes to Terry Southern and to Joe McGrath for the finished screenplay but here's the thing if I'm right in saying I tried to sort of speed read the book before we spoke but I think I'm right in saying that uh, the, the the boat in the actual book doesn't turn out to be in a warehouse and I I've got a funny feeling that whole thing was just made up on set because the screenplay so called was uh, you know, credited to Joe McGrath and Terry Southern. They were basically rewriting on the hoof. And certainly, I, I believe it with the cameos. Who've we got? Who've we managed to book? Oh, we've got Raquel Welch. Okay, so here's the setup. During my reign as priestess of the whip, 
I have never seen such unmitigated slope. My God, what's going on here? Jacques! How dare this intrusion? Who are these people? Oh, these are, these are me mates. Out! Out! Ah! Oh, I say! Do that again! I don't believe half of these things were written into a screenplay and then created. I think it was, we're going to put everything into this soup and just roll with whatever we've got at the time. Christopher Lee's in it. Brilliant. Okay. Get his fangs out. We've, I've got to, this is what's <laughs> going to happen. Because none of it's in the book. And it, it, it really feels like, it feels like they're putting on a, a sort of a, a student rag kind of event. And yeah, using yeah, yeah. What they've got. Yeah, because the last scene was the bit where everyone realizes that they've been in a warehouse and it's a big scam. It's yeah. it's just it's descended into complete chaos. And that's and, it. And I really think it was shit. How are we going to end this? That's what it was. I yeah. think it was Joe McGrath, yeah. Terry Southern, a huge ashtray overflowing with spliffs, yeah, and bottles of wine everywhere, and Peter <laughs> Sellers shouting in his trailer, and them saying, <laughs> "How are we going to end this?" Bloody I mean, this is why I say that the film is doing exactly what Guy Grand does, and the 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 viewer is the you know the person that he's testing, because uh, you know it's such a kind of uh, uh, the whole film is about the magic Christian. What is a magic Christian? It's this incredible cruise liner. Oh, what? Let's watch that. And you get to the film, and nothing's happening. None do the cruise liner, and then suddenly, oh, you get it. The film is going somewhere. Somewhere we've got a plot. Oh, and it's just a warehouse. It's it's the exact same mm. kind of pull the carpet out from yeah. under you trick that he keeps playing on yeah. people. Yeah, and it's got Sellers fingerprints are all over this film. Unlike you know, it's not he's he's not just turned up to collect a check. He's personally involved with every aspect of it. And the Lawrence Harvey scene near the beginning, where Lawrence Harvey is is as Hamlet basically takes his knickers off on stage. Yeah, strip, <laughs> strip Shakespeare. Strip Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, and again, you've got Guy Grand there, Sellers, pretending that he's disgusted by it, even though, you know, he's the one that's orchestrated it. I love the scene with the, um, where Guy Grand is addressing his board members. And, and we don't realise, we don't realise until, you know, the end of the scene that it, they're actually on a train. Yeah. Uh, but you've got one of the some... nicest things about that is you've got Fred Emney there. Yes. And you just don't do anything with it apart from the fact just you've got Fred Emney. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't get a chance really to be Fred Emney. He doesn't have any lines hardly. I think he might no. get one line. No. But it's just like, oh, and there's Fred Emney. He's just well, the there smoking is... a cigar. Yeah. The weird thing is you've got Fred Emney, you've got Dennis Price, who is yeah. a, you know, the iron horse of British comedy, British films really in the 50s and, and into the 60s. And Jeeves, and, indeed. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and and then, but the, the 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 one guy that has seems to have the most lines. Did you recognise Lord Hampton, the guy playing Lord Hampton? Uh, I did. It's gone out of my head. Well, uh, let's reveal that your next book, by the way, is going to be the complete history of Are You Being Served? Um, and it, <laughs> oh, it wasn't Frank Thornton, was it? No, Jeremy Lloyd. Oh, of course, J Jeremy Lloyd, and I think it's possibly my favourite line is when um, Guy Grant has played them this promotional film for the, the this new what would you call it this this Uber car this Zeus, and he he wants them to he wants the the board members who are now they've they've turned into sort of marketing men, he's getting them to pitch. Uh, you're sure to enjoy the big gangs all here back seat. <laughs> Hampton, try that again with an American accent. That was an American accent, sir. 
It's certainly a better part for him than he had in uh, A Hard Day's Night. Yes, we didn't have any lines in A Hard Day's Night, did he? Yeah, exactly, he was just <laughs> dancing around. It's interesting, there's a lot of, I mean, it's not It's not that surprising because Joe McGrath was involved in A Hard Day's Night as well, but uh, mm. with uh, Lionel Blair did all the choreography, yep. uh, recently late. lost to us, yep. but uh, let's not get onto that. Um, mm. I'll, start, I'll start quoting Humphrey Littleton. <laughs> um, Yes. But yeah, there's all sorts of weird little kind of connections to A Hard Day's Night in there, which is uh, quite nice from my point of view. Well, the, the, other, the other thing is, it's um, so in The Magic Christian, it's, a, it's, it's possibly the second time in a film that Ringo has shared a railway carriage with a, a grumpy businessman. <laughs> That's true. If yeah, you think about it, because in The Hard Day's Night, they were, they were in a, a carriage with, was it Richard Vernon? Richard Vernon, wasn't it? Uh, in the in the Hard Day's Night. Yeah. In Hard Day's Night, and then in this, it's you've got this bumptious type who. Oh God, yeah, the the that is uh, with the Chinese guy mm. with the puzzle and the. Mm. <sighs> Blimey. And then you got you got, I won't try and describe it, but Salah's dressed as, as a nun briefly. Um, that that is the apex of the film, really, isn't it? In, in terms of trying to get people to get up and walk out of the cinema, which is what that film does regularly. <laughs> I think that was built into what they were doing. It's just like that's going to get them out. That they're not going to. If they're still sitting in their cinema seats after the the nun disco flashing lights, you know, no warning on the DVD for anyone with uh, epilepsy. I noticed. As oh well. no, that's right. Yeah, I was thinking that when it's happening. Like, Thank God we we don't have that. Um, but yeah, I think that that's the ultimate sequence where if you stay after that, you'll probably be there to the end and then maybe even more annoyed. And I just want to come on to the, the, the sequence with Spike. Yeah, um, yeah. Because that's... From this podcast point of view, it is the epicentre of the film. Really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, i tell you what I could do, because I did look at, having looked at Flick Through the Book earlier, mm. I could just give you a quick reading of basically how that scene played out in the source material in, in Terry Southern's original... Novel. Oh yes, please. And, yes, and then you can kind of see whatever you know Spike and Peter brought to it. Yes. So it's it's don't worry, it's only a page or two. Um, so half a block on, he reached the car, though he seemed to have a momentary difficulty in recognizing it. Beneath the windshield wiper lay a big parking ticket, which Grand slowly withdrew, regarding it curiously. Looks like you've got a ticket, Bub," said a voice somewhere behind him. Out of the corner of his eye, Grand perceived the man in a dark summer suit. He's not even a traffic warden, is he? <laughs> Leaning idly against the side of the building nearest the car. There was something terse and smug in the tone of his remark, a sort of nasal piousness. Yes, so it seems, mused Grand without looking up, continuing to study the ticket in his hand. How much will you eat it for? He asked then, raising a piercing smile at the man. How's that, mister? demanded the latter with a nasty frown, pushing himself forward a bit from the building. Grand cleared his throat and slowly took out his wallet, a long slender wallet of such fine leather it would have been limp as silk had it not been so chock full of thousands. I asked what would you take to eat it? You know, wide-eyed he made a great chewing motion with his mouth holding the ticket up near it. <laughs> the man, glaring, took a tentative step forward. Say, I don't get you, mister. Well, drawled Grand, chuckling down at his fat wallet, browsing about in it. Simple enough, really. And he took out a few thousand. I have this ticket, as you know, and I was just wondering if you would care to eat it for, say, a quick glance to ascertain, six thousand dollars? What do you mean, eat it? demanded the dark-suited man in a kind of snarl. Say, what are you anyway, Bubba, wise guy? 
wise guy or grand guy. Call me anything you like, as long as you don't call me late for chow. Hey, ho, ho. Grant rounded it off with a jolly chortle, <laughs> but was quick to add, unsmiling, How about it, pal? Got a taste for the easy green? The man, who now appeared to be openly angry, took another step forward. Listen, mister, he began in a threatening tone, half clenching his fists. I think I should warn you, said Grand quietly, raising one hand to his breast, that I am armed. Huh? The man seemed momentarily dumbfounded, staring down in dull rage at the six bills in Grand's hand. Then he partially recovered and, cocking his head to one side, regarded Grand narrowly in an attempt at shrewd scepticism, still heavily flavoured with indignation. Just who do you think you are, mister? Just what is your game? Grand's the name, easy green's the game, said Guy with a tinkle. Play along? He brusquely flicked the corners of the six crisp bills, and they crackled with a brittle, compelling sound. Listen, muttered the man, tight-lipped, flexing his fingers and exhaling several times in angry ex exasperation. Are you, trying, are you trying to tell me that you'll give six thousand dollars to eat that? To eat that ticket? That's about the size of it, said Grand. He glanced at his watch. It's what you might call a limited offer, expiring in, let's say, one minute. Listen, mister, said the man between clenched teeth. If this is a gag, so help me. He shook his head to show how serious he was. No threats, Guy cautioned, or I'll shoot you in the temple. Well, what say, 48 seconds remaining? <laughs> Let's see that goddamn money, exclaimed the man, quite beside himself, now grabbing at the bills. Grand allowed him to, do it to examine them as he continued to regard his watch. 39 seconds remaining, he announced solemnly. Shall I start the big countdown? Without waiting for the latter's reply, he stepped back and, cupping his hands like a megaphone, began dramatically intoning, 28, 27, 26, while the man made severally wildly gesticulated and incoherent remarks before seizing the ticket, ripping off a quarter of it with his teeth and beginning to chew, eyes blazing. Stout fellow, cried Grand warmly, breaking off the countdown to step forward and give the chap a hearty clap on the shoulder and hand him the 6,000. You needn't actually eat the ticket, he explained. I was just curious to see if you had your price. He gave a wink and a tolerant chuckle. Most of us have, I suppose, hey? Ho, ho. And with a grand wave of his hand, he stepped inside his car and sped away, leaving the man in the dark summer suit standing on the sidewalk, staring after him, fairly agog. Oh, well that's, done. That's what Spike and Peter had to work with. <laughs> and uh, it's not, you know, it's not a big character from Spike, is it? It's a straight man role, really. Well, he's, well, and by the way, you should be trading the boards. But oh, um, <clears throat> but Spike, as a, as a traffic warden, is not as reticent <laughs> to, to, to eat the ticket, ticket as, as uh, the man in the summer suit. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's this. There's lines, there's lines directly lifted from the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Limited offer expiring in, shall we say, one minute. Stout yeah. fellow. Spike does everything he can to bring comedy <laughs> out of that scene. You know, the blowing He's his nose. He's a horrible character. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact, I don't know what it is, I love the fact that as he's clarifying with Grand the terms of, of the offer, he gets caught up with these guys with placards. You know, the end of the world is nigh. And he's kind yeah. of he's marched down the street. He gets his, his foot run over as, as guys driving off. Just little things that Milligan, I'm sure Milligan just sort of inserted into his performance just to try and amp up the funny. That you are in violation. You violated the traffic rule. In fact, get out of it! By parking your car in and loading zone. That's what it's all about. What do you mean, loading zone? There's no loading going on around here. What are you 
What do you think these sharks are doing with them pressurized firkins then? Tell me that then. Pressurized firkins. Firkins. You know, not many years ago, I, I can recall there when you could buy a decent pressurized firkin for a couple of pounds. Let go, sir. All right, let go, sir. The whole thing is, these sods aren't loading pressurized firkins, they're unloading. Constable, there's, now there's the rub. There's no there. difference. There's no difference at all, and don't call me constable. It's Sergeant Warden, not Sergeant Warden. What are you trying to tell me then, Sergeant Warden? There's no difference between loading and unloading. Are you going to come that way? What's what he doing? He looks like a bleeding nutcase to me. That's Where my... do you get your bleeding haircut? Number seven. And I think possibly... Ringo's been given the most to do in that scene because he's doing those isometric facial exercises. Yeah, it's all strange little asides from from the you know the actual point of what the scene is. Yes, like you know, was that a good idea when they were sharing a joint <laughs> before action was cool? Because I mean, that's the, look, I'm not one of those people that is always like, oh, wacky backy, you know, uh, referring back to uh, to marijuana uh, as as any kind of uh, artistic fuel. But oh my god, this film was fueled by weed, certainly. Well, there's a uh, say, there's a scene later on where where um, what would you call him? Like the psychiatrist, psychologist uh, tries to offer this elderly man <clears throat> some hemp, as he describes yeah, it, to tight yeah. to tighten his wig, and um, and he drops it on the floor, and and Sellers picks it up, or Guy Grand picks it up. They're not, they're not going to waste it, are they? Um, no, exactly. But by the way, just that scene, just before that scene, it's um it's where the so. The, the captain's deck is televised to all the passengers. You can see what the captain's doing at all times of the day and night. And there's a, a, a short sequence where it looks like there's a hijack going on on the bridge. Uh, and there's this elderly man and a group of others, they go to the bridge to try and see what's going on. And I noticed, and I only noticed on this watch, that <laughs> there's, there's like this young guy, like a teenage boy in red trousers, Who's like? He looks like he's a bit hip, bit hippified. It's just this this watch that I realised who that was. That's Michael Sellers. That's ah. um, Peter's son. Oh, interesting. Uh, he doesn't have any lines, but he's just sort of there, just making up the numbers, you know. I mean, uh, it's, I think it's typical <laughs> that, that you only saw that on what the you know tenth or twentieth viewing, whatever it is, because I think some films you sit and watch, and it tells you a story, and you enjoy the story. These kind of sixties films that I'm talking about. They're films that you watch to kind of experience something that was made. And rather than being conveyed and dragged along by the story, you're just watching, it's, it's like a social document yeah. of, of what these people were doing and, and what the hell was on their mind at the time, you know. And there are other films like that. There's, there's um, plenty of films where it's not great storytelling, but the world that it conjures up that you can walk into for a couple of hours uh, is endlessly fascinating. And there's always, because there's so many people trying to be as weird as possible, there's always going to be something that you haven't seen before. By the way, one other thing I'd noticed for the first time on this viewing, because uh, the magic Christian that the ship mm -hmm. really gets only mentioned, what is it? Two thirds of the way into the film. It, well, it exactly. It, um, it, same in the book, I think as well. It's yeah. Well, I noticed that going back to the spike scene, the traffic warden scene, I noticed that on the back window of Guy Grand's Mercedes, there's a sticker and the sticker says, sink the Christian. Ah, see, this is the other thing as well. I mean, part of the whole publicity for the film when it came out 
was what is the magic Christian. It was teasing the magic Christian. And that's how it works. I mean, as I say, this whole thing of pissing off the audience, it's, it's all this mystery. What is the magic Christian? And as you say, you don't even really hear it kind of alluded to in any kind of forefront way until two thirds of the way through the film. Mm. And then ultimately it turns out to be a warehouse somewhere in London. Um, but I think the first time I'd ever heard of the magic Christian would have been, and I, I, I think I'd got a bootleg um, CD of uh, Beatles Christmas albums and the, the Beatles last flexi disc oh, yeah. mm. has Ringo mm. uh, as edited by Kenny Everett. Merry Christmas, 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 Merry I think there probably was a lot of publicity like the the uh, Sink the Christian in the car. Maybe that was like something they'd put up for, mm. real, for real life, you know, when it comes to trying to get people, have you seen the Magic Christian? They thought maybe it would be a huge hit through, you know, re repeating that. But I think once, once one audience had seen the film and found out what the Magic Christian was, um, they suggested maybe don't go and see it. <laughs> and it sank. Um, yeah, exactly. But, but so I saw this film just in terms of the, the the sheer talent involved even you know off screen so i saw this film probably would have been i don't know 89 and at that time i was really you know i, I liked the, i liked the beatles as much as the next person likes the beatles mm -hmm. but i wasn't particularly you know i didn't have any of the albums yeah. or anything like that so the film starts sorry again we're just going all over the place but the film starts with this um this little sort of lecture about um the importance of money or money mm -hmm. in general and the national anthem is played and then and then you get this song and it's a song that i when i first saw the film i just assumed it was the beatles the, the beatles mm. I, it was come and get it by the band bad finger which is one of those sort of handful of bands that always has the epithet tragic attached to well them. Uh, certainly there's no band uh, more due a biopic than mm. I really can't believe nobody's ever ever told that story. Uh, that's that's whoever plays uh, Pete Ham is going to get an Oscar. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no sleeping on the grass. No sleeping on the grass is allowed. So when you when the film starts, you see Ringo in the park. You see Guy Grand waking up in his luxurious townhouse. And just as a very quick aside, I yeah. bet you, I wonder to what extent that was an influence on um, John Landis trading places. There is a similarity, the start oh, of that film, the waking yes. up in a big city with the poor and the rich. Oh, uh, yeah. That literally, that literally just occurred to me now, but come to think of it, I bet you John Landis saw that film at least once. Yeah, and absolutely. And yeah. Trading places is a masterpiece, I would say. So that, that's another plus for the Magic Christian. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> yeah, but so so you've got Ringo waking up in I think it's St James's Park, and you've got Rita, Rita Webb. That's what it, when I think of the Magic Christian, if someone says Magic Christian, I, there's a couple of sort of instant images that enter into my head, and one of them is Rita Webb as that what would you call her? This sort of hatchet-faced old harridan, who's who's hectoring Ringo on this park. Yeah, bench. yeah, yeah. 
played a lot of those, didn't you? Um, you've got Sellers, or at least you've got this park keeper with us, you know, one of those pointy sticks uh, prodding Ringo at his sleeping bag on the grass, saying, No sleeping on the grass. And it's Sellers doing the voice, it's, it's Sellers doing um, mm-hmm. William from the, from the Goon Show. Uh, obviously, Sellers meets young men in the park. And it seems, mm-hmm. and this is why I bring this up because there's kind of a question mark and you know i'm not going to make a big point out of this but there's a hell of a lot of sort of what would you call it uh, yeah picking up a boy in the park well this is the yeah i mean because that's obviously not something that isn't in the book because there's no young man character you could argue that there's a sort of um you know when he goes to um, meet his sisters on the train and everything that they all just accept that he's picked up this young man <laughs> and, and adopted him and part of you wonders whether because they know guy grand whether they kind of uh take it for granted that there's something else to it and just don't speak about it because mm. he goes yeah. to the when he goes to the restaurant which has got graham stark as the waiter yeah. and um Salas basically gorges himself uh and and then he goes and dances with the chef and <laughs> one of his one of his sisters says that's the last we'll see of him tonight <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's another one yeah because I think in the book, there was a lot of, well, maybe not for the time, but looking back now, there's a lot of sort of racism and homophobia. There's, there's uh, a bit of homophobia because it does have the actual, uh, the heavyweight fight. Thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. In, yeah. in fact, in a way, actually, the film is slight, is less homophobic because they have the two heavyweights just sort of, mm. you know, start start to make love to each other. Whereas in the book, it's far more camp and just sort of, um, you know, limp-wristed. <laughs> So it's, it's quite interesting they didn't really sort of fully go. I think maybe just the actors couldn't convey that anyway. They said, well, look, I'll hug him, but you'll have to cut away. And that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> One of them was Nosha Powell. Um, was it? Yeah. Jesus God. Mm. I, you're right. I was one. It was bothering me. That was bothering me. <laughs> of course, I know Nosha Powell, but I know I know sort of mid 80s Nosha right. Powell, who obviously got a very different look in the comic strip. In Eat the Rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Oh, bloody hell. Oh, thank you for that. That's that's knitted up two corners of the universe. Uh, there we uh, go. That was bugging me. People tend to point to the auction house scenes yes. as being the strongest. That's uh, it is my favorite. Um, that's that's why I chose it as a, an extract for Fab Fools. Um, mm. to me, the, the funniest moment in the entire film, it, and I know you'll you probably already guess what I'm gonna say, but it is just John Cleese's single shit. Yes. Just one one word, middle of the film, John Cleese saying that. That is, to me, the, the, as funny as the film gets. But uh, it's crucial that we did get around to this, Tyler, because the one thing that we haven't really discussed about it, and, and to me, one of the most interesting parts of the story, if it was available to be told in full, is the, the kind of madness that Peter Sellers opted to take on for himself while making the film he was this was a particularly bad one as i understand mm. um we all know the stories of of peter sellers from film to film and the way that you know it, you know if you're going to have a character inhabit you uh you know even after the director shouted cut you don't bloody want it to be sir guy grand mm, no and no. that is who he was carrying around with him um, well, Ring, I mean, there's a lot in Fab Fools, as you know, about the Ringo saying about the difficulty of working with Peter and that by the end of the day, they'd all be mates and stoned and laughing and drinking together. And then we'd wake up in the, they'd wake up in the morning and Peter Sellers would just be uh, just a blank sheet again. Yeah, like it reset. Yeah, utterly yeah. impossible to work with. And just, 
you know, happy for everything that he did to make the film happen. To, to film happen, Peter Sellers was happy to just completely drop it at any moment and just cancel it. And you know, never mind the money, never mind anything else. If he didn't want to do it, he didn't want to do it. And mm. one of the key ways in which this manifested itself, so we understand, is his hatred of John Cleese and the terrible way that he treated John Cleese all throughout. And he was the one that got Cleese and Chapman, I think maybe via David Frost. Maybe yeah. he'd ask David Probably. Frost. Yeah. And they were obviously very rookie when it comes to writing screenplays and they never wrote a good one unless you count being part of Monty Python. Mm. Um, and so the, the process of them writing it, if, if Sellers already had his hooks into Cleese, and you've got to remember by this point, John Cleese has been around for six or seven years. I'm sorry, I'll read that again, is, is, is the huge raucous radio comedy success that the goons once were and he's already been on at last the 1948 show and clearly you know a, a a comedy character to be reckoned with at that time and Sellers seems to have just bloody hated him and Joe McGrath told me all sorts of stories about that scene being filmed and and Cleese just doing doing his thing you know it's a there is a slight prototype Basil Fawlty to that character and it's you know, he is a snob. In yes. fact, it's pure faulty because he's talking to that other guy. And yes. until it's it's that is an exact template for uh, <laughs> it is, yeah. Lord, Lord what's his name in, in Faulty Mal Towers? Mal Mulberry, like, Mulberry, is it? Yeah, Lord Mulberry, where he's mm. just like, go away and puts the phone down. It, that is exact <laughs> joke he does. This is uh, Rembrandt, is it not? Well, uh, it may be. It's not been authenticated. It's certainly school of Rembrandt. Mm. It's most frightfully dark. One can hardly make it out at all. Well, he was a master of light and shade, wasn't he? And it is a, a little old. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Uh, Dugdale. Dugdale, might I ask the price of this example of light and shade? It's being sold by auction, and we expect to get about uh, £10,000. I'd be prepared to give you 15. £15,000. Uh, yes. See, well, I'm afraid I've been given instructions not to accept any. In that it's... case, my final offer would be 30. £30,000. Yes. Yes. But, um, but as we understand it, that scene, all throughout, they were trying to film it, and John Cleese was doing his thing, and Peter Sellers would just be going, what are you doing? Mm. What is that? That Do you call yourself a comedian? You're pathetic. This is ridiculous. Mm. What on earth do you... I mean, he did not let... He, he absolutely ripped into... And, and John Cleese obviously idolised him. He was like his comedy mm. hero and he's there watching that scene and looking at Cleese thinking you poor bastard because he's, he's, he's like red in the face in that playing that character <laughs> and if you don't if you don't know that subtext the scene still works brilliantly but I you know I would love to hear less from John Cleese about 
being cancelled and and you know the iniquities of being woke and more about why peter sellers despised him yeah and what what that felt like you know? i'd love to know what ringo made of it all because ringo would have been right there as well and, and you'd think if sellers is is tearing strips off please you'd have thought ringo might have yeah. stuck up for him or had a well, word or something that- it's it's like it, you know I, I don't know who said it probably Paul McCartney so you, that you can't you know you you can't be a bitchy or something in front of in front of Ringo because Ringo just kind of he's the nice presence that kind of mm. makes everyone happy kind of thing mm. so I I wonder you know well actually I just think it was a stroke of luck it probably maybe the film wouldn't have got made without Ringo I think that the figure of Youngman is crucial even if it hadn't been a beetle i think that to have somebody there to sort of be an eye on this bizarre protagonist is very very good screenwriting technique let's see is he he kind of like the audience surrogate because there's a bit definitely um, yeah there's a bit where um youngman says just what is our work dad and guy grand says it's not so easy to define so so you know it's it's the entry point to you know to get into that universe Mm. And, you know, if Ringo had said no, and George and Paul, well, Paul would probably have thought about it, but uh, George <laughs> would have said no as well. Um, you could have had, I don't know, let's say Michael Palin, a young Michael Palin in that role. Then uh, that would have made sense. But maybe the film wouldn't have got made because it was Ringo being Ringo that managed to make Peter behave himself enough mm. to get every, enough in the can that it, it exists. Mm. I think that might be a large part of it. And that's the same, really, as sort of uh, the Let It Be sessions, really, isn't it? That was Ringo's... Yes. You know, Ringo is an anchor, uh, you know, in life. And I think maybe that was his role as Youngman, um, as well as within the band. As I always say, or we always say on this this podcast, the Goon Show probably wouldn't have lasted anywhere near as long as it did if Harry Seacombe hadn't been part of it, because he Mm. he was the anchor. He was the calming influence. Yes, yes, similar thing, yeah. By the way, the boat race scene for, for Goon Show fans um, is significant because it has John Snag as the commentator. Because uh, yeah. John, John Snag in real life commentated on the boat race. And now they're off. They're off to a good start. They're late, but nevertheless underway. And despite a rather fresh headwind, they're moving along rather nicely. In the and... same way that you have Humphrey Carpenter uh, doing the boxing. Yes, indeed. That's right. Again, I think that's what kind of also lends it this slight kind of comic relief sketch show feel that there are a lot of celebrities popping up sort of ribbing on their usual job i think (laughs) you've got michael aspel as well haven't you that was uh, a surprise i forgot michael aspel was going to turn up yeah i was kept waiting for a giant white kitten's foot (laughs) to squash him yeah uh just another quick uh, goon show thing here um Mm -hmm. as as the ship descends into chaos just just before they realize they've been on you know in a warehouse well you see a, a guy dressed in an ape suit wrestling wilfred hyde white <laughs> yeah. for a start but then you hear very clearly over the tannoy system sellers doing major blood knock from the goon show saying yeah. uh, something along the lines of this is the new captain speaking uh and then you hear um the sound of uh fred the oyster which is a sound effect they used in the goon show a lot this is the new captain speaking And again, it's just Sellers must have just said, just it must have just tickled him. He was on the spur of the moment. He must have just said, "Right, I'm going to do this now." It's funny. It's constant experimentation, really, isn't it? And this goes back to uh, working with um, 
uh, you know, Son of Fred and all that kind of stuff. It's, I think people are generally agreed, it's a dodgy thing to say on the Goon Show podcast, but I think people are generally agreed that the Goon Show was like the biggest radio comedy sensation of, of its generation of the 50s, but it never really successfully made it to screen. No, it didn't. Um, but that in itself is what gives all of the sort of even tangential attempts this constantly experimental feeling. It's just like, well, what's going to have the same effect that we had standing around a microphone? Let's try this. And all this stuff ends up in the brew. And so you end up with with a lot of with some films which are kind of bitty and uneven, but it's because they 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 know how great they can be, and they're trying to make it work in this medium. And all they can do is try things out. Mm. Um, but I think you know if they found a format that worked in the same way that Monty Python found a way of making a really successful cogent movie with Life of Brian then, you know, maybe they could have made a dozen goonish films, which would have been still loved in the same way that Life of Brian is, because it would have had some, they'd have made, they would have found the secret that they were experimenting to find, that made <laughs> mm. it really work in a commercial way, you know, because we could argue whether it worked creatively all day long. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but you know, you've got to hand it to them. And again, I, I think you've, you've got to hand it to Joe, that he would was ultimately happy to let the talent experiment. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's um, possibly a, a good point to, to end on. <laughs> well, I think we could talk forever. But yeah. uh, I mean, there's certainly a lot more about the goons and the Beatles uh, to be found in Fab Fools, I wish, without wishing to sound like too much of a shill. Um, it's, <laughs> because, I mean, it, that is interesting. Really. I mean, Harry Seacombe doesn't really come into the book at all, let alone Michael, Michael Benty. But then again, you know, that they weren't the ones really that the Beatles were had their obsessions with. But it wasn't that the Be when the Beatles were kids, they had obsessions with the goons. And then when the Beatles were in the 20s, the goons had obsessions with them. Um, yes. It's, it's yes. incredible, really, the way in which Peter Sellers, I mean, really sort of one of the, uh, the you know, early genesis of this film is captured on a dodgy... Uh, uh, audio bootleg from I, I can't remember what maybe it is from the let it be sessions being topical with get back about to come out on uh, mm -hmm. disney plus whatever it is but there's a famous bootleg of uh joe mcgrath and uh, peter sellers coming around to uh, the studios where the boys are working and just sort of stoned out of their heads and just trying to be cool with the cool kids yeah and peter sellers is pretty cool don't get me wrong i mean he, it's not like he was an old granddad but uh there is a real note of desperation in his uh, any time he's with the Beatles. Is that... I, maybe it's just me. I just get this impression that he's just like, I, you know, these guys think I'm God and they, everyone else thinks they're gods. And so the more time I can spend with them, the better. And uh, so that was one of them. And is, the other is one, that where, is that where, because I've heard a recording of Sellers with the Beatles Um mm where he says something, Salah says something along the lines of, that was really good grass, you got me. Yes, no, exactly, yeah. yeah. That, that's kind of part of what I'm talking about. It's just like, yeah. Which is what your dad make, would say. If your dad you're going to make, make the scene in the gents' lavatory, <laughs> you know. And yeah. it's just, even, like, then they go, and you've still got the Beatles there, and it, and it does feel a little bit like, all right, he's gone now. <laughs> 
And then what I've also got in the book um, is this, this sad letter that Spike Milligan wrote to George Harrison, which I always found mm. uh, very telling. And it's basically, I mean, if you received a letter like that from somebody that you were friends with, um, I don't know about you, I mean, you've read it, you, you know, mm. I'd, feel, I'd feel really freaked out. Mm. It's a very kind of need. It's 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 quite it's beautifully written because it's Spike. Yes, and it's like I have a love for certain people, and I have a love for you, and you you know this is how you use a phone to to fit to ring me, and it's Spike being Spike, but at the same time you kind of imagine this was I think it was late seventies, mm. and I we we're only aware of this letter because it was on Letters Live, fantastic. Uh, live show they do which which my wife is a great uh, fan of and, and goes to see a lot mm -hmm. and it was uh, Andrew Scott performing Spike Milligan's letter okay yeah mm -hmm. and it's a it's a it's almost like one of his poems really it's a great piece of work but it's base it is an old man begging yeah. for attention yeah from from a beetle and you kind of almost want to say Spike you know you are Spike Milligan you, you know pick up the phone yourself but don't go begging you know to that's why I'd be interested in what his relationship was like with Paul as a, as a, you know, relatively near neighbor. I'd love to know, you know, how Spike interacted with these guys behind the scenes. Yes. And, yeah. you know, these are, these are the questions that nobody asked, nobody's asking Paul McCartney at the moment on the publicity circuit. And it's just, wow. if only, if only I could, uh, uh, you know, um, get to ask a few more obscure comedy anorak questions of people <laughs> and uh, what you want is for him to say right i'm not going to answer it from now on like ringo said i'm not going to sign any more autographs yeah. years ago. you want paul to say i'm never going to answer any more boring questions that have been asked before i'm only <laughs> yeah. going to answer interesting questions which haven't been asked of me before and that's I, where I you can uh, first in the queue i would have had two dozen at least for him straight mm. off the bat but, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe one day but you know fab falls too let's look out for that <laughs> totally so um next i know obviously you're recording the audio book uh, of fab falls and oh, also yeah. hopefully that's going to be out before christmas 2021 that would great be, i mean i'm not sure it matters with audible because do people buy people audible things for christmas i don't know you should do buy this one you should it's do got all the voices i have to do all the Beatles. <laughs> you know, we'll see how that turns out but as long as they're so, not as long as they're not the like the voices and the beatles cartoons no, well, I, I well, I did actually have to try and do the voices from the Beatles cartoons as well. So, mm. yeah, there's clear clear distinction made between the two. You know, <laughs> well, I could be doing an impression of jo John Lennon from the cartoon right now. For all, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, no, yeah, nobody would know any any different. Than quite a few of them. And uh... so, Joe, uh, so Joe, Joe, do you know what I said, Joe? Hey, I... hey, how can I help you? <laughs> I made a great film once, nineteen sixty-seven. It was. Ah, I invented the port video. Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> Thanks again to Jen. See you soon, folks. Take care.